Right. Good morning, Mission Viejo Christian Church. It is good to see you. It is great to see you. It's a great morning, and it is a great day. I'm just, I'm excited on a lot of fronts, uh, part of which has to do with football, which I love, but maybe a little more has to do with what it is God might be speaking to our hearts this morning. A number of you mentioned my beloved Seahawks jersey. Thank you for that. Yes, go Hawks over here also, right? Some of you mentioned you saw the name Kilpatrick on the back, and it occurred to you that you don't remember hearing that name as a member of the Seahawks before. And the really astute among you noticed number 50, that was K.J. Wright. But I'm here to tell you that before there was K.J. Wright, there was another guy who wasn't me and a long string. But here's the deal. This jersey was given to me just a couple years back in commemoration of a very significant birthday. Thank you. Thank you. And I, I, can, I can see the wheels turning. Scott, why in the world would they celebrate your 40th birthday by giving you a jersey number 50? We don't understand. A little oversight, but it's okay. We can go with that. It's going to be all right. We're looking forward to the Super Bowl and having a lot of fun, and I couldn't help but think, wouldn't it be fun sometimes, maybe not all the time, but wouldn't it be fun if church was just a little bit more like the Super Bowl in some ways? I was reading this week, and it just caught my mind again. I thought this was crazy. You can bet on anything. Millions of dollars are going to be bet this afternoon on the length of the national anthem. The over-under is set at 119 0.5 seconds, and you can bet whether it's going to go longer or shorter. And Pastor Mike, I just, I had this idea, right? Just like we could set an over-under on the message every week, right? Set it at 39 and a half minutes. Like, can you imagine, around minute 38, how people would be glued into your message and the attention that that would be, it would be awesome. And then, it, of course, we'd tithe off the winnings and it would be great, and I can see I should probably get to the Bible pretty quickly. Okay, good. <laughs> we're, we're in this series. We're plowing our way through the book of Luke. And we get to a really critically important place here in Luke chapter 18, verses 31 to 35. And, and i just like to dive right in, and we'll take it apart kind of as we go. So here's what uh, Dr. Luke writes as he's uh, relating the account to us. He says, Jesus took the 12 aside... And he told them, we're going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and insult him and spit on him. They will flog him and kill him, and on the third day, he will rise again. Amen. So, Pastor Mike asked me, and I'm so grateful, thank you, if I would speak um, this morning. And I was thinking, awesome, there's going to be like an awesome, fun, upbeat, inspirational, football-y kind of passage. Touchdown. <laughs> and then I thought, at least if it's not that, it's going to be a nice romantic, there's like, we got Valentine's Day coming up, and it'll be a nice kind of love, sweet, sentimental passage. And I open it up, and I come to this passage, and Jesus is talking about dying. And that, that troubled me a little bit. And then I realized that there is no greater expression of love ever than what Christ did on the cross. So I want to break this down 
just a little bit, kind of point by point, and we'll see what Jesus is doing here. And the first thing we notice in that passage is this. Jesus took the disciples aside to speak just to them. Um, It's like he wanted to say, what's about to happen is really important. And I don't want you to be distracted. I don't want you to miss it. I don't want you to misunderstand it. It's important that we're all on the same page together in this, right? If there's a close football game and it gets down like you're right in the last minute and it's coming down to it and there's a crucial play and you just got to get it right, what happens? The coach calls a timeout, brings his guys over the sideline. And these are guys who have spent their entire life preparing for this game. They know the ins and outs of the playbook. They know everything they need to know. These are not guys that need to know something new. They just need to be reminded. It's like the coach saying, you are, and your career is going to be defined by what takes place on this next play. And because of that, I just want to take this moment to say, let's be together. Let's not miss. Let's not make a mistake. Let's be clear. Let's be unified. If you're the Seattle Seahawks and you're on the one-yard line and all you need is one yard to win the touchdown, to defeat the Patriots in Super Bowl 49, you need a moment to say, don't throw an interception, run the ball. (laughs) Yeah, I'm bitter. (laughs) Maybe I'm not bitter. Maybe I just have an accurate memory, but it is a painful memory. (laughs) Jesus takes a little time out and he rallies the guys around him and says, I don't want you to miss the importance and the significance of what happens next. We've all got to be on the same page here. And with that in view, I just want to know, what is it that Jesus is saying in this time out that's so critically important? And what he does there in just a few short verses is he gives them a context for what's coming next in his ministry, what they're going to experience in the upcoming weeks. He's, he's telling them what's happening so that they can be ready and some context for it. And the context he gives is this. What's coming next is part of God's plan. The prophets have talked about this for hundreds of years. I think Jesus understands that because what's coming is difficult and painful and hard and involves suffering, that there's a possibility that the disciples would go, this must be some kind of a mistake. This must be some kind of error. It's not supposed to happen this way. And Jesus is saying, no, let me put what's about to happen in context. It's part of God's plan. Not just now, but from of old. It's been part of God's plan that this would happen. Don't be mistaken. Now, I imagine in part that what the disciples thought when they said, when Jesus said, hey, everything that the prophets have written about the Messiah is going to come to pass. Now, it wasn't all bad. In fact, a lot of the Old Testament prophecies about what the Messiah would do and would be were really positive. Things that they would look forward to, things that they would rejoice over. Take, for instance, this passage out of Isaiah. This is a, this is a messianic prophecy. That is, it's a prophecy from the book of Isaiah, which looked forward to the coming Messiah and described what life would be because of his influence. This is what Isaiah wrote. He said, in the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord and to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. 
He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. And they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war any more. Isaiah gives us this vision that when the Messiah comes, that his, uh, his rule is not just over the people of Israel, but it's, it's the peoples of the world. And he brings a season of peace into the world uh, at large. And that this was something to celebrate. This was great news. Now we understand now that that's a prophecy that we still look forward to. We still await the completion of that prophecy at Christ's second coming. But these disciples didn't necessarily gather that. They just heard, hey, what's coming next is going to be the fulfillment of the prophecies. And I'm sure that a couple of them said, here it comes. Jesus has taken up his kingdom. Jesus is going to toss off the oppression of Rome. Jerusalem is going to be reestablished as a world power. And we've got a seat at the table. And it sounded like great news. And so then Jesus had to do something else. In addition to calling his disciples together, in addition to setting the context that this was a part of God's plan, he had to correct their false expectations. He said, yeah, all that the, apostle, all that the uh, prophecies have, have uh, said, all that the prophets have written about the Messiah is going to come past. And then he says, specifically, there are some of these prophecies that he'll be delivered to the Gentiles, that they'll mock him, that they, are, they will insult him, that they'll spit on him and flog him, and they'll kill him, they'll lead him into death. That's a pretty quick reversal for the disciples to manage all in that moment. And again, I just want to make sure that we're clear that as as much as the prophecies of the Messiah looked towards that Isaiah passage there that talked about his ultimate triumph and his ultimate role as a global leader at his second coming, Isaiah also wrote this about the Messiah in chapter 53 of his uh, prophecies, and it speaks to the kind, this is just one of many prophecies that speak to a suffering Messiah, a Messiah who gives through sacrifice. This is what Isaiah wrote in chapter 53. He, the coming Messiah, is despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we have held him in low esteem. Surely he took our pain and bore our suffering. And yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us has turned our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Hundreds of years in advance of the cross, long before the torture of crucifixion had even been invented, Isaiah is painting a picture of what's going to happen to Jesus. It's a bit of a troubling picture that the God who created everything and holds all power 
brings himself to the point of that kind of suffering and that kind of sacrifice and that kind of death. And if I'm with the disciples and I want to choose which kinds of prophecies about the Messiah I want to see fulfilled, it's like, hey, sign me up for those swords into plowshares and everyone getting along. I'm in. But Jesus says, hold on. There's something between here and there. And I don't want you to miss it. I don't want you to misunderstand it. I don't want you to blow past it too quickly or too arrogantly. So Jesus had pulled them aside, right? He'd given them some context. He'd clarified their wrong expectations. And then he gives them hope because he closes with his description to the disciples and tells them, and on the third day, I will rise. This horrible thing's going to happen. These brutal, awful, hideous, murderous prophecies will be fulfilled, but then I will rise on the third day. Jesus points all of this out. And we have this moment here in Luke's account of the passage. What happens next? Before we get to how they responded, just stop and examine your heart. How do you feel about what Jesus has just shared? How does it sit? How does it feel? What questions does it raise? I think probably the disciples were in many ways feeling some of those same things themselves. In fact, Luke describes it this way. The disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them. And they did not know what he was talking about. Here it is. The single greatest event in redemptive history was unfolding. And Jesus was explaining it to them. And they didn't get it. And I think maybe they were so... They were so focused and enamored of the picture of what they thought God's redemptive work would look like, kind of their picture of how it should be and how it ought to play out, kind of their ambitions for what that life of victory and triumph and conquering might look like, that when Jesus described the reality of what God's redemptive work might look like, they were baffled, and they were blinded, and they were disoriented. They simply didn't get it, even though Jesus was right there explaining it to them. And you, probably like me, read that and you go, what idiots? How can they not understand it? He made it so clear. He described it. He explained it. How can they not get it? In fact, in some of your Bibles, this this particular account has a, a, a heading on it that says, Jesus predicts his death. For the third time. How are they not getting this? How can they be so confused? How can they be so dense? And I just want to say before we pile too harshly on the disciples. I'll ask this. Have you ever felt just disappointed. In the way that God was allowing things to work out for you. Have you ever been, like, spiritually disoriented because you had this picture of where God was taking things and the reality is just very, very different? Have you ever found yourself crying out to the Lord, maybe in your heart or maybe out loud with tears coming from your eyes, God, this is not the way it's supposed to be. She's not supposed to leave me. 
He's supposed to recover from that illness. My kids are supposed to be okay. That job is supposed to come through. Fill in the blank. Have you had those moments when this reality that I'm experiencing, I was clear on how God was going to work this out, and it is not happening that way. Gosh, I don't know about you, but when I find myself in that place, the last thing I'm saying is, oh, I'm so glad this is part of God's plan. He's got it under control. I find myself with the disciples going, I don't get any of this. And even though Jesus himself could be telling me what's going on, I don't get it. It's hidden from me, and I don't understand what's taking place here. Just like he did in this passage for the disciples, Jesus spoke elsewhere. The Gospel of John records it for us. Jesus told us the kinds of things we might be willing to expect. He said this. He said, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. And I love that last line because I can take heart because Jesus has overcome the world. And I love that last line so much that I forget the first one. And when in this world I have trouble... I don't think, oh, that's part of God's plan. You know what's next is he's, he's going to overcome. No, I think, in this world, I'm having trouble. Something's wrong. God, why are you doing this to me? Have you forgotten me? Because, God, if you remembered me, it just feels like you would never let this happen. And I've tried, and I've tried, and I've tried, and God, where are you in the midst of this? And like the disciples... I frequently forget this. And the only thing I anticipate in terms of God's activity in my life are the victories and the triumphs and the blessings and the conquerings. I want to say of some of my suffering, and we tend to say about some of our suffering, no, it's wrong, it doesn't make sense. God's vic- this is not what God's victory looks like. Most of us carry in our heart a picture of how things are supposed to be. And the gap between how they're supposed to be and the way that they really are can be so disorienting, so baffling, so confusing to us that we find ourselves just like the disciples. I don't get it. I don't see it. I don't see how this can make sense. And in some cases... If we're honest, we feel this thought rising up within us. God, if this is the way you roll, I'm out. I I didn't sign up for this. And if this is not what you're going to provide, I'm out. And I'm done. Because the long, relentless grind of everyday life has just sucked out of me everything that I have to give. The most powerful thing that Jesus Christ ever did was go to the cross to purchase our salvation. The greatest expression in human history of love is Christ on the cross. And yet the disciples, as Jesus described it, weren't getting it. And I would say that many of us sometimes just don't get it. And we fail to get it Because we tend to set the parameters for what God's activity looks like. What would God's activity look like in your life? 
Man, my first answer is not, it would look like going to the cross. It would look like death. It would look like humiliation. And yet in redeeming the world and in saving us in the greatest expression of love ever, that is what God's activity looked like. That's how God accomplishes redemption, through humility, through suffering, through sacrifice, through pain, and through death. Listen to me. Those who call yourself and name yourself and consider yourself a follower of Jesus. Whatever else, whatever else that may mean about following Jesus, it will mean at some level and at some place following him into humility and into sacrifice and into suffering and into pain and into some level of death. Well, Pastor Scott, aren't you a ray of sunshine on this fine Super Bowl Sunday? It's in the midst of these experiences that you and I encounter God's love and his grace most powerfully. And yet these are the experiences I try to keep at heart's length and avoid at all costs. Something's got to give, and something's got to change. And that may be where you are now. You might be at a place in your life where your motto right now is, I just don't get it. I don't understand. And that's a fine, abstract concept that maybe this is part of God's plan. But in terms of the concrete reality of my life, this makes no sense. And I cannot connect the dots. I cannot extract any sense of meaning, any sense of purpose, or any sense of hope from these circumstances that I find myself in right now. Some of us feel like we're on the edge and we've been clinging as tightly as we can. And the grip is slipping and the rock is crumbling. And and we're... We're about to be done. That's where the disciples were in this moment. Jesus had just explained it all in his purpose, and they just couldn't get it. Do you find yourself there this morning? If you do, I want, I want to fast forward roughly two months, 50 or 60 days, where we find an entirely different disciple. Peter is among the 12, who in this moment hears Jesus' words and says, I don't get it. This is hidden from me. I can make no sense of this. What are you even talking about? That, that's the Peter we have in Luke chapter 18. I want to introduce you to a different Peter a couple of months later. Jesus has died. Jesus has risen. Uh, Jesus has ascended to the Father. He promised the Holy Spirit to his disciples and they gathered for prayer and God poured out the Holy Spirit upon them. And, and it's this great moment at, at Pentecost when all the Jews from around the world had come to celebrate Pentecost together. Thousands of people are gathered to ask this question, what's going on with these followers of Jesus? And Peter, who two months before had no idea what Jesus was talking about, and could make no sense of a suffering Messiah, gives a sermon that makes absolute and complete sense 
and reveals a level of understanding that didn't exist before. This is what Peter says. Peter, who had been confused, Peter had felt lost, Peter, who didn't get it, now says this to the Israelites. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited to God by you, or to you by miracles, wonders and signs which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Right? That... Peter gave voice to what is the central truth that binds us together in Jesus Christ, the meaning and the purpose of Christ's death and resurrection. And he said it so clearly that it couldn't be mistaken. Peter was able to look at the crucifixion event and say, I get it now. I understand now what God was doing. I didn't understand it when he said it the first time. Or the second time. (laughs) Or the third time, life kept going on and I couldn't see it and I couldn't make sense of it and I was lost in the struggle. And while he was dying, I was fearful and I rejected him. Peter, this was Peter, but something happened and he finds himself fully embracing the reality and understanding what it was for. Peter, he crossed a bridge. He got from here to there. He was able to move from confusion and to arrive at clarity. He he was able to cross the bridge from blindness to boldness as he declared the gospel. He he, He moved from being disoriented to being incredibly decisive. And like for me, I want to go, look, right now in this moment where I am in my life, who do I identify with? Do I identify with Peter who figured it out and could proclaim it with boldness and clarity? I actually, right now in my life, identify a little more with the disciples. In a kind of what the heck is going on kind of mindset. But I'm telling you, I want to know what happened to Peter that got him across the bridge from here to there. That, that is a bridge that I want to traverse. I, I, I want to know what's it going to take to get me from this place of Jesus can tell it to me and I know it and it's an idea, but my heart does not resonate with this is okay in my life. But if there's a bridge I can cross that gets me to a point where I can say, man, painful, hard, difficult, confusing, disorienting, but I get it. And not only do I get it, but I can share it with others in a way that draws them to Jesus, right? It's not just that Peter gave a great sermon, although he did, but by the Spirit of God, 3,000 people came into the church that day because someone had crossed a bridge from I don't get it to now I understand it and I'm ready to share it. And that is a bridge that I am ready to cross. And I think it's a bridge that we all need to cross. And I want to invite you to cross it, not just with Peter, but with me and with all. And so with that in mind, I do want to say this. If you're with us today, if you're here, whether this is your first time or you've been with us a few times, if today you don't consider yourself a follower of Jesus, maybe, maybe you're still deciding about that. 
Maybe you know you're not a follower of Jesus, but you came with someone who invited you and you're kind of honoring your friendship and relationship with them. That's awesome. Let me say, first of all, we're so glad you're here. You are welcome here and we love you. And we're super glad you are in the right place. Second thing I want to say is, as we talk about some of the steps it takes to hop on that bridge and move from this place of where we are over to where God wants us to be, we're talking specifically to those who have said, I want to follow Jesus. So, I mean, feel free to listen in. Feel free to learn a little bit about how it is that maybe Christians view that particular journey. But please do not feel like we here in the church are telling you how to live your life or pointing out the problems that we think that you have or perhaps even telling you that we think you've got problems and that's the cause of our problems and if you just shape up, then our life would be better. Nothing could be further from our heart. People within the house of God, people within the family of God, it's believers' jobs to say not what's wrong with the world out there or not how those who don't follow Jesus ought to be behaving. We have got plenty of work to do to say what does it look like for us simply to follow Jesus and to follow in the way that he made the example for, right? That's what we're talking about. And so I want to invite those of us who are following Jesus. And some of us, I, by observation, some of us are doing it great. And by observation, some of us struggle along the way with that. And that's okay. God makes a way. He loves us. He continues to grow us and empower us. And the more we walk with him, the closer we get. It does get better and better. But we're anything but perfect, and that's okay. But what we're doing this morning is to say, what would it look like to follow in the way of Jesus what can we find in Jesus' example that gets us from here in a point of struggling and maybe not understanding everything that's taken place over the bridge to the place that we do? So here's a few ways and a few things that are required for us to cross the bridge. Crossing the bridge requires brutal honesty. Brutal honesty. Before we can get to the place of understanding and embrace of this stuff that's happening in our life that we don't understand, we have to be honest about the fact that it's there. I've been a part of church families and fellowships at different points in my journey that kind of took the approach of we can never admit that anything's wrong. Because if we admit that we're wrong, then the world will see that our lives are broken. And why would they want to follow and travel along with people whose lives are broken? We need to show them all of the perfection of God's holy people <laughs> so that they can say, wow, I'm so impressed. I wish I could do that. Let me follow you. And sometimes intentionally and sometimes not intentionally, we fall into this trap of putting on the church face and saying, it's okay, I'm full of faith, I'm fine. <laughs> I got this thing coming up, it's a big deal, and I'm kind of, if I'm honest, I'm worried about it. I know worry's not a good word. I know, know I'm not supposed to worry, so I think I'd love it if people would pray for my anxiety, but then I'd have to admit that I'm anxious, and I don't want them to know that I'm anxious, so I'm just going to sit here and clench my fist and try not to be anxious. 
clenching my fists, trying not to be anxious. The ultimate contradiction, right? If, if we want to cross the bridge to understanding, the first part is to say, we just got to be honest, right? I'll tell you truthfully, the world's not necessarily drawn to people who have no problems. For the most part, none of us relate to those people, <laughs> right? It's not the absence of problems that are, that's going to attract people to Jesus. It's me smack dab in the middle of my problems saying they're real, they're hard, and they're difficult, but God is with me, and that's enough. That is attractive. To be able to say there's a big thing in front of me this week on Tuesday afternoon at 4 o'clock. It's a big deal and I am nervous about it. And I know I shouldn't be, but I can, as best I can, I'm giving that to the Lord. And I'm asking him to give me his peace. And I'm waiting for that. That's relatable. That's powerful. It's very connective. Without that kind of honesty, we'll never cross the bridge. In your heart of hearts, I'm not going to ask anyone to actually stand up and say anything. But in your heart of hearts, if you could give voice to that fear, to that trouble, to that worry, to that situation, to that need, what would it be? And I'm just going to put it out there. But not only is God up to hearing about that from you. He died to make a way for the two of you to process that together. There is no lack of faith in saying, I am in a difficult place. God, I need you. In fact, there's no greater place of faith than to say, God, I am in a difficult place. And I don't understand why you haven't fixed it yet. But God, I need you to help me. There's no getting across that bridge until we begin with the brutal, brutal honesty. Jesus is our example here, right? Jesus, with the cross and the whole experience of crucifixion ahead of him, goes into the garden to pray. And he didn't say, all right, Father, let's do this. Crucifixion on three. (laughs) In a moment of honesty and transparency before God the Father, he says, God, I don't want to do this. Is there any other way? Because if there is, let's do that. That's the kind of brutal honesty that we begin with in getting on the bridge and crossing the bridge over to understanding. In addition to brutal honesty, by the way, this list isn't going to get any easier, okay? So strap in. Some, you know, sometimes truth isn't comforting, right? Sometimes truth is just a necessary slap in the face that in the long term is great but feels kind of yucky right now. So that's me, your pastoral slap in the face for this season of ministry. In addition to brutal honesty... It requires relentless humility. And when I say relentless, I mean relentless. The God who is infinite, the God who was all-powerful, 
the God who created everything that was chose to take on the limitations of human flesh, to be here with us, God with us, to come in a form as vulnerable as it gets, a baby in a manger, and to experience pain, struggle, toil, work, suffering, And the promise of Emmanuel, God with us, is powerful because it means that God from heaven comes and takes up residence here on earth and is with us. But the cross reveals that God with us also means that he partners with us in our suffering. And that we see a God in the person of Jesus Christ who, whose relentless humility is such that he doesn't just remove suffering, he doesn't just overpower suffering, steps down from heaven and participates with us in suffering so that we will not be alone in the midst of it. No part of his existence required him to do that. He willingly took on the humility of becoming something less than he was for the sake of others so that they could become everything God called them to be. And if we're going to get from the uncertainty about this situation that I'm in right now to really understanding it and being confident about it, part of what we're going to have to walk in is humility. And here's, here's why I say that. I think about what happens when I go to a new restaurant. I'm interested in the menu. I'm interested in the food. I'm interested in the prices and the ambiance and all of this stuff. And I'm interested in the service. And especially at a, at a newer restaurant... And if if that first drink order isn't there pretty quick, I don't know, this may not be the place for me. And if the order isn't quite right, or something's forgotten, or it takes too long, I will say to myself, I'm not coming back here because this place did not meet my expectations. And then to my horror... I find that sometimes I treat Jesus like my waiter. Well, that drink of water didn't come quick enough. That's not what I ordered. This is not how I want it to be. Thanks, this is not the place for me. I'll go find something that suits me a little better, that caters to my wishes and my desires. The arrogance of treating God as my waiter who will either serve me to my expectations or not and then I will behave accordingly is staggering. The only way to cross the bridge from this place, from our current reality to that place where we can really embrace it and understand it is to step out of the arrogance and to say, God owes me nothing. that he would know my name should be mind-boggling to me. That he would involve himself in my life at all defies description. That he would die for me is inconceivable. To follow Jesus is to follow in the way of humility that says, what I'm experiencing here is not a failure of God's provision. 
And my sense of disillusionment and uncertainty and brokenness here is not a failure of God's performance from which I can turn my back and walk away dissatisfied and give him a poor Yelp review. Humility says, God, I may not like it and I may not understand it, but you are King of kings, Lord of lords, God of gods. And if this is what you have for me now, I'm going to, in appropriate Christ-like humility, say, I will step into that and I will take that on. Just as Jesus took on the humility of human flesh, I will follow him in that taking on of humility and enduring it for his purposes. And that's hard to do, but until we can do that, we don't get across the bridge to where Peter eventually got. Brutal honesty, relentless humility, and then there comes a moment of what I call heroic surrender. There just comes a time where you you just got to let go. The, The picture that I have in my mind is this. Those of you who have been blessed to have um, children know this moment where there is a, a sick infant who's just miserable, a sick infant who doesn't know better. And so they look to you as the one who's able to provide everything and do everything and fix everything. But they're sick and they're in agony and you're holding them, but they're still miserable. And they wonder, why won't you fix it? Why won't you make it go away and you're walking the halls at night with a sobbing crying baby trying to provide them some peace but you can't and and sometimes the crying goes to sobbing and almost yelling and there's this kind of chaotic almost panicked tone coming out of this child that I don't know what to do with and then there comes this moment where the infant just says I'm out of gas takes a gasp, leans its head in up against mom or dad's neck and goes, and then falls asleep in peaceful, perfect rest. Parents, we're still up all night trying to get over that very chaotic moment. But, but there's that moment of heroic surrender that, this, that the infant does where he's like, Oh, I can't keep doing this. I'm done. There comes a moment in our brokenness. As we're being held in the arms of a loving father who is able to do all and who is able to fix everything and will make everything right. But we're crying and we're uh, appealing and we're screaming and we're chaotic and we're panicked and we're out of control. And then there's got to come a moment where we go, God, I give up. It, whatever you say, whatever you want, and we just settle in to that place where we can hear the feel, the quiet heartbeat, and life becomes peaceful again. And by way of an application, I just want to invite all of us to go ahead and just close your eyes, if you would, to avoid distraction. And I, I, I think I want to just ask, are you ready for a moment of heroic surrender? I'm done fighting it. I'm done trying to fix it. I'm done trying to figure out, God, why you haven't fixed it already. And I, I just want to embrace that you are my all in all, and however this goes, I'm with you.
and you're ready to experience maybe the, the kind of peace that comes along with that. In just a moment, we're going to have uh, communion available to you. It's in the seat pockets in front of you there, the communion elements. And I want to invite you. What a great moment to make an act of heroic surrender. If it's meaningful to you as you kind of, because we'll do this individually, but if it's meaningful for you in the act of receiving communion, just to put your hands up as a physical sign of God, I surrender, do that. If it's meaningful for you to slip forward from your chair and bend down on your knees and, and just declare even by your kneeling position that God, I'm, I'm surrendering to you and to your plan and to your will, then during communion, do that. But as we take these elements, the bread that reminds us of Christ's body broken on the cross and the cup which reminds us of the blood that was shed so our sins could be forgiven. As we take these, let's make these emblematic. Let's make them declarative of our surrender. Not a fatalistic, inevitable, I guess whatever will be, will be, but a very intentional, heroic surrender that says, God, I am your servant to do with as you wish. And I will embrace that in humility and with honesty and with a sense of heroic surrender. So Lord, as we receive these elements today, would you meet with us? Would you bring us your peace? Would you fill us with your spirit? Would you help us to cross that bridge? In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for joining us at Mission Vale Christian Church. Just know that we always have live services here every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. We'd love to have you here, and we'll see you next time.